Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Before we go back to the usual darkness, could we just start off? with this reminder that we can still do big things. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Eight, yeah. seven, oh, six, wow. five, four, three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. We're getting visual confirmation. We got it? Waiting. Waiting. And we have an impact. We have the humanity in the name of planetary defense. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. And that is fantastic. A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics, uh, joined me on the podcast today. I got to say, I've listened to that probably half a dozen times. I still get goosebumps. I agree. It's so rare and extraordinary these days to hear that unanimity, that rejoicing, that sense of mission accomplished for something that's actually not only super cool, but really important. And that there are people out there trying to prevent our ultimate demise is really heartening. And I didn't know how much I needed it until it happened. No, I I, I agree. And it is cool. And obviously, I think that, you know, people know that we're talking about the the fact that uh, we, we sent this spaceship directly like a, a dart into this space rock and hit it. And, you know, this is the world's first planetary defense test mission, which is kind of amazing. I just humanity's first attempt to alter the motion of an asteroid or any celestial body played out in a NASA webcast from the Missions Operations Center outside Washington, D.C., 10 months after we first launched it. And, you know, it it's cool in and of itself, but I don't know, should I go here? Should I go, should I go for the snark right away? Yes. I'm sorry, you know, it in contrast to the billionaire phallic rockets, <laughs> which are like, hey, look at this. We go up and then we come down again. This actually has very, very clear relevance and utility. Absolutely. And it's easily understandable. There are asteroids out there. Now, it may not happen anytime soon, but the odds are with billions of asteroids flying around that sooner or later one's going to hit our way and then really, really bad things could happen. And this is something that has been, has, you know, been the focus of, of science fiction movies. But now we're actually developing a planetary defense system that might be able to blow them up or change the trajectory. I mean, this this is not just, you know, sending something up into the air to show that we can do it. It's like, okay, can we actually save all life on the planet if we have to, if one of the big ones is heading our way? It's breathtaking. I mean, here we all want, are on Earth. We can barely pass a, an annual spending bill. All Everyone's fighting. <laughs> all these debates are convulsing democracies around the world. And 
you know, other dictator countries are just, you know, ignoring and, and decimating human rights. But someone, some really smart people are putting their hearts yeah. and minds and resources and energy into, quote, planetary defense to save all of humankind. It's it's such a contrast. It, it, it gave me chills for so many different reasons. Yeah. In my newsletter today, I did that split screen that we're, we're kind of getting at the sublime and the shambolic <laughs> is that while we, we have this incredible technical achievement, scientific achievement, we now have to come back to our shambolic petty politics, where obviously we not only seems like we can't get things done, but there's a lack of willingness to do that. And I talked about the the latest uh, extremely um light in the policy loafers agenda from the house GOP, which basically has no, uh, you know, how many, do you have any idea how much shit I'm going to probably get for the whole, you know, light in the policy loafers <laughs> thing? Just I know. yesterday, I, I'm, I'm sorry to bore you with this. Uh, you know, I was talking about lawyers and I, I included just sort of in passing some lawyer jokes in the context of saying that, that our democracy, you know, now rests in the hands of maybe the judicial system. Um, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be up to prosecutors and judges to save our democracy, but here we're at. So, but I included in sort of, you know, drive by uh, manner, a couple of lawyer jokes. And of course I got all of the huffy, you know, <clears throat> that's not funny, Charlie, we should not be joking about these things, you know? So thank you all for your daily doses of complete humorlessness. Oh, my goodness, they can't take that. Just reminding us. Okay, so hello, darkness, our old friend. Uh, So right now, in late September 2022, A.B. Stoddard, what is the most interesting state in terms of our politics? What is the most entertaining of the 50 states? Entertaining or worrisome? I mean, there's there's a few that are so interesting for profound reasons. You go first. I have one. So I'm really fascinated in the disparity between J.D. Vance's approval and Mike DeWine's approval in Ohio. The incumbent mm-hmm. governor is way ahead of J.D. Vance. Yes, we're told that polling is off just across the board. Yes, we're told Ohio polling is historically weak, but watching the difference between, you know, the sitting governor comfortably putting his Democratic opponent away, Nan Whaley, and then, you know, these polls that have shown Tim Ryan in the fight all along, right? I just can't help find it fascinating and wonder what's going on there and what will happen. Maybe Tim Ryan loses by, you know, two instead of eight. It was a Trump eight state. But again, Ohio, so interesting. That has three major urban centers, which obviously abortion is going to is going to be a factor in. When I look at, like, I'm not even looking at Florida, North Carolina. I basically consider Wisconsin. That I'm just consider it like that. Ron John's going to be reelected, but Arizona and Georgia. I mean, my goodness, Charlie. Uh, I'm. I, I just. I know that Blake Masters is way behind. Um, um, the, the the sitting the senator Mark Kelly he continues to crush the polls and reach fifty percent and be eight points ahead of his opponent but but then this Katie Hobbs the Democrat running against the super kook Carrie Lake for governor she she's invisible she 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 doesn't go on TV she doesn't hold high profile ca- campaign events she's not going to debate which I think is a huge error and so that. I think is Arizona is still really a weirdo Weird. factor for me. And then, of course, in Georgia, you know, you have Stacey Abrams admitting that she's having trouble with black men voters. And um, and there's just been 
I believe there's going to be ticket splitting or 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 holes in the in the ballot. I believe a lot of Republicans are going to fill out their ballot for Brian Kemp and not vote for Herschel Walker. Doesn't mean they're going to vote for the senator Raphael Warnock. But it just is. There's been too many polls where Herschel's like kind of hanging, and so I don't know. Weird. It is weird. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the the striking things about this year. You have some of the the weird uh, the weirdest most. Uh, I think demonstrably uh, unfit candidates, but they're still in in the mix. So, um, yeah, on on this question of of, of Georgia and, and Herschel Walker, I mean, we've seen what being a Republican in the Senate has done to the brains <laughs> of people like Marco Rubio, <laughs> Ted Cruz, and Josh Hawley. Imagine what it would do to Herschel Walker. Imagine what being a Republican in the Senate would do to the brain of Herschel Walker. I just want to leave that yeah. aside for a moment and and maybe regret the fact that. We're not going to be saved by an asteroid hitting the Earth before <laughs> November. But um, the, the the correct answer to the question, uh, A.B., about the most interesting state, I would like it to be Wisconsin, but it is, I'm afraid, Pennsylvania, where we have both Doug Mastriano, who is running one of the weakest campaigns. I, I this, this New York Times story, you know, Doug Mastriano, who just a complete, you know, election denier, fake conspiracy theorist, I, you know, I, we, could, we could go on for some time here. Mastriano sputtering campaign, no TV ads, tiny crowds, little money. You really hate to see it being heavily outspent by his Democratic rival, has no television ads on the air since May, has chosen not to interact with the state's news media in ways that would push his agenda and trails by double digits in public polling and most private surveys. And then, of course, you have Dr. Oz, who, OK, this is the thing that puzzles me. About, and of course, he's also now trailing uh, John Fetterman, even though, again, this should be a state that Republicans should be within. I mean, this would be a state that would be on on the list of Republicans to be able to flip the governor's seat and and uh, and hold on to the Senate seat. But mm, doesn't look like it. So here's the, my question about Dr. Oz, though. This guy has spent his entire life shilling and marketing for stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, the the guy's basically a carnival barker. So you'd think that he would be kind of, you know, have had some experience at messaging. And yet he's so bad at it. And I want to play for you a soundbite. You know, he's been trying to find different ways of changing the dynamics of the race. He tried to make an issue of Fetterman's health, which was cringeworthy, apparently didn't get him any traction. So now, and I, I, I am not kidding you, he's he's going after John Fetterman's clothing, which he describes as his costume. And he has deep thoughts about the way that John Fetterman dresses, you know, the the hoodie and all of that stuff. So here's here is Dr. Oz talking about why he dresses like that. I want to push back on the costume a little bit because it's an interesting phenomenon. I was stunned by it as well. But it turns out <laughs> that if you're stunned. a far left radical with the belief that this country is irredeemably stained, you just want to break it apart. Just mm. bust America, yeah. crack it to its base, break it asunder and rebuild it with your toxic ideology. That's what he stands for. Mm. When he dresses like that, it's not an accident. He's kicking authority in the balls. Yeah. He say, hey, I'm the man. I'm going to, I'll show those guys who's, who's boss. I'm going to not allow any traditional path to succeed because by breaking some parts of it down, I can represent, I can break it all down. That's the deeper message he's delivering. <laughs> when he dresses like that, he's kicking authority in the balls. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm Dr. Oz <laughs> is now campaigning for John Fetterman, basically highlighting the fact that 
he has serious street cred with Trump voters in rural Pennsylvania he, who dress exactly like John Fetterman. He is way cooler than you think. It's just oh, wait. bizarre. This is what's known as an own goal. <laughs> it's just, oh, the man is really scratching around. I mean, this is getting strange. Uh, that's the one thing. You know what that I hoodie means? Yeah. I, I, if I were on his team, I would have said, never touch that stuff. Never touch the shorts and the hoodies. Don't don't go there because that's like that's his cred. You know, don't do it. But he did it. He's really desperate. Yeah. Here, here is Doctor Oz, who wears, I'm guessing, handmade bespoke suits. Yes. <laughs> Was making fun of a guy who wears hoodies. In Pennsylvania, where they're fighting for blue-collar rural voters. <laughs> Pure man of political genius. Okay, so that's sort of why Dr. Oz is 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 struggling. And you you mentioned the other, you know, what, what's going on in, in Arizona, which, you know, continues to be just, what a strange state. What a, you know, a, a, a state where, you, you know, one side of the screen is, perfectly rational people, including a long tradition of rational Republicans. And then the other side of the screen are these absolute, complete, you know, batshit crazy folks like uh, the Republican nominee, Carrie Lake. And of course, Tucker Carlson had Carrie Lake on his show last night. And she's talking about the Italian election where a far-right candidate, Georgia Maloney, who was the nominee of the party, was the leader of, of, a, of a party, that really is a successor to the fascist parties in, in Italy. And people are very, very concerned about her extreme right-wing, semi-fascist ideology. And Carrie Lake, like so many other Republicans, has really rushed to embrace her. And this, I want to talk about this phenomenon, the enthusiasm of American right-wingers for this uh, you know, quasi-fascist candidate in, in Italy. And this is what she had to say uh, last night. So you were one of the very first American politicians to weigh in on this election. You were paying attention, which I appreciated. What do you make of this? I'm so excited. You know, it's funny. I looked, I looked this uh, Italian uh, Ms. Maloney up uh, when I heard about her about a week ago, and I couldn't find any just straight-up information on her. Everything was, she's a fascist, <laughs> she's a, a racist, she's this, she's that. And I thought, wow, this is somebody who I can relate to because they're doing the same thing about me. And it, it makes me yes. realize that if they're not calling you all of these slurs, if they're not attacking you, then you're probably not truly representing the people of your country. Ah, if they're not calling you a racist or a fascist, you're probably not representing <clears throat> certain people in your in your country. Yeah, the thing about Carrie Lake, the reason that she's so dangerous is that unlike Mastriano, who I believe does not at all uh, prioritize uh, campaign funds, advertisements, rally size, because I do believe that he believes that the storm is coming and Q has told him that he's going to win the gubernatorial race and that, you know, it's it's God's call. Uh, so I just think he's that over the line. Carrie Lake is an incredible performer. I find her totally mesmerizing. And that's what's frightening because she's a complete and utter liar, um, a former supporter of Obama and big Trump critic. And she as we've all mentioned so many times, has been in the living rooms of all of these constituents for two decades as a TV personality in the state. And she's now transformed herself into, you know, Tucker. And she has a, a, a mass following because she's this, you know, again, really good communicator and she's a woman. 
And this is why the idea that Katie Hobbs refuses to debate her and call her out as a fraud and a danger, I think is is so reckless um, and so risky because I think Carrie Lake knows what she's doing and she does it pretty well and she's going to become a huge contender on the right, win or lose. Well, and and in, in part that's because she's not an outlier, as you could tell from from Tucker's enthusiasm. You know, there there was once a real. I think I talked about this on another podcast. There was there was once a real distinction between American conservatism and European National Front conservatism. Mm-hmm. There was a libertarian streak, and now there. I mean, you can see really across the board how excited uh, American right wingers are at watching. Uh, this, uh, this this far right candidate winning in in Italy, you know, shows that you know they they really globalized much of their their ideology. But also, I just think it's interesting the way that they are framing it. That it's almost <laughs> as if being called a racist and a fascist, by which they mean also behaving like a racist and a fascist, is not kind of a badge of honor. It's it's kind of a, a seal of approval that you must be doing the right thing if you're be called a fascist and a racist. So. Uh, people should not be surprised when people on the right just no longer even blink when you accuse them of that. Oh, it's you know, it's it, it, it it's it, there's there's no longer any sense of like, oh, no, no, that's wrong. We are not. We are not. You know, the, they've turned into the fact you're calling us a fascist means that we must be doing something right. OK, so this is where we're at here. Yeah, it's the goal. Fascist is the new racist. <sighs> you know? Right. Because that wasn't enough, Charlie. <laughs> that wasn't cruel and liberal enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when if you were called a racist, it was something like, okay, that's that's embarrassing. I, I need to I need to refute this in some way as opposed to shrug my shoulders and roll my eyes. But now it's like, okay, fascist being the new racist, it's like uh all these fascists around around the world, they're they're like us. They're they're doing the same thing that we do. And if you criticize them for their fascist policies, well, come on, I can identify with that because you know that's what they say about me. I mean, this is for for people who don't understand or or perhaps somewhat naive about the the trajectory of all this, and you also raised another question, which I don't want to gloss over: the increasingly explicit embrace of QAnon conspiracy theories by Donald Trump himself. Yeah, uh, e- even though apparently they're discouraging the the one finger salute anymore. But but you know, yesterday I was on one of the cable shows and they were doing a little doc, little mini package about QAnon how bizarre it is, how it has destroyed lives, how it's associated with the violence. And people ought to be very clear what we're talking about. I mean, QAnon, it's very complicated, but it believes that the world is run by a ring of satanic pedophiles. And then it gets worse from that. You know, people who believe that uh, the military is going to uh, rise up, overthrow Joe Biden, and that it will arrest Biden, other leading Democrats, uh, you know, celebrities, take them down to Gitmo and execute them and they think of this as a good thing. And the only reason we are talking about it is because the former and perhaps future president of the United States is embracing and amplifying this absolutely bizarre, toxic, hateful conspiracy theory. And yet that's sort of like number 15 on our list of things that we are outraged and worried about. Yeah, it's remarkable when you see Republicans try to, almost two months after the August 8th search at Mar-a-Lago, all these things have been revealed. And now they're saying, you know, they're, they're finally answering reporters' questions and saying, no, you can't really declassify 
with your brain or your nose. And you would think that this is that QAnon, this, this idea of flirting with and embracing QAnon, which we know is a very intentional tactical move on Trump's part, right, to find a sort of a new army, a new, to expand his universe of people who are frightened and, and are impressionable and want a massive confrontation known as the storm where these political enemies will be executed at Gitmo on live television, apparently. Also, since he called into the January 6th like, vigil rally in a D.C. jail to some Sixers and said it was such a disgrace and how he's trying to help right. fund their defense and everything, you would think that in all we've been through, uh, not only in the last six years, but in the last you know couple of months, that Republicans would say, I just want to make it clear exactly. that this is really dangerous and none of it is true. And they know, Charlie, that people in their church and people in their neighborhoods and people in their family are going down QAnon rabbit holes. It's no longer some strange, distant thing. If, if we don't know personally someone who's, you know, flirting with Q, we know someone who knows someone. This is really incredibly dangerous stuff. And this is so easy for Republicans to step up and say, you know what, you can just do it with your hometown reporter. You don't have to go and call into 60 Minutes and sit down. But you, you can, you know, take a stand on this and say, I believe the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice that this is a real dangerous threat. No, total silence. See, this is a, another really, really important point, um, and, and I wish I would have made it more forcefully yesterday during this this conversation. The complete absence of any pushback from uh, the normal Republicans, you know, again, shouldn't necessarily be surprising, but it's still shocking if you yeah. understand the contradiction there. And of course, we have the usual explanation, you know, cowardice, it's the midterms are up, you know, people don't want to rock the boat. <laughs> There's also a sense, though, I, I just think of numbness, of exhaustion. It's like, why bother? And as a result, you know, we have one of these moments again where, you know, the best lack all conviction, where the worst are full of passionate intensity. But I looked around to find any pushback. And again, you point out something. This is easy. It is really easy yeah. to come out against violence, against, you know, people who think that, your political opponent should be arrested and executed at, you know, Guantanamo Bay. It, it shouldn't be difficult to speak out about, you know, the threats of, of violence if the criminal justice system works. And yet I can't find anything. Am I missing something? No, no, no one has said anything since the rally the weekend before with all of the uh, fingers in the air and the music. And then as you said, this last weekend's rally, he still played the music and he speaks, you know, in, in very frightening, dystopian, you know, terms and knowing that Q is all over his audience. But I guess when they put their fingers in the air, some people were trying to discourage them. If that means that Republicans are calling the former president's team and saying, uh, could you just keep the fingers down? Everything else is cool. I mean, <laughs> that would be even worse. But yes, it's been complete and utter silence. Yeah, apparently somebody thinks that if you don't have the finger up, you know, which is, you know, where one goes, we all go or something like that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 
the the satanic ring of pedophiles. But it is interesting how often um, you, you see echoes. I mean, not only do you not have a pushback, but the the echoes that you hear of QAnon conspiracy theories. You know, a, a lot of the you know talk about the deep state or of grooming, um, the the obsession with uh, you know possible you know child molestation. You know, all of these things that kind of pop up or are dropped into rhetoric are really sort of winks and nods at at QAnon conspiracy theory. So, you know, there was a time like 10 minutes ago when Marjorie Taylor Greene was, you know, out there, you know, she was not completely on the fringes because she had a seat in Congress and Republicans were not expelling her or anything. But now Marjorie Taylor Greene's rhetoric is really... I mean, it's 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 really become very much like the mainstream of the Republican Party. Is is that is that hyperbole to say that? No, it it does seem it does seem now like a long time ago, Charlie, when there was a vote in Congress to strip her of committees because she was the QAnon Congresswoman. She's now a major star. She's still a freshman. I know it seems like she's been in the House for eighteen years, but she's still a freshman. <laughs> that that's how recent it was. And now she's seated behind, you know, the left shoulder of Kevin McCarthy when he does his policy rollout um, this week. I mean, it, it tells you all you need to know that she's been normalized. She's been elevated. She's close with she's made very shrewdly made sure that she has good relationship with Donald Trump. And that's her leverage. And she makes everyone else nervous because of it. She can just get on the phone with Donald and rat you out if you're, you know, Nancy Mace or Kevin McCarthy or whoever it is. And so, no, she's um, she has been elevated ever since, which means that QAnon is no big deal. Okay, so trigger warning here, A.B.? Yeah. Uh, Let me put this in context before before I I go there, because so last night, as you know, I used to have a radio show here in, in Wisconsin and was there for 23 years. And we broadcast from a thing called Radio City, which is this sort of temple of radio that had been been there since the 1940s and last night was the very last show broadcast from there and I actually went down was on a show with my my former producer and uh, you know I had to say it was I was struck by all the ghosts that were there many of them very personal all of the the, the politicians that I had thought one thing back then ah. and now have learned wrong so okay so that's just sort of my preview there Elise Stefanik <laughs> Is this where you remind me that I was signed by JVL in 2018 to write a piece about how great Elise Stefanik was? Oh, so you're throwing JVL under the bus now. No, I mean, he and I, huh? he and I agreed on this, and at the time, she was great. Okay, so listen, I'm not trying to be embarrassing here. No. I mean, I, I have I have Ron Johnson on my yeah. record. No, I, mean, I have I, Ron I, Johnson on mine. I can beat you. I have Sheriff David okay, Clark. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so yeah. I'm not throwing any shade, but I'm thinking about... The the transformation of the Republican Party, how Marjorie Taylor Greene has become more mainstream. Obviously, Liz Cheney has been excommunicated. But I'm looking at this tweet with this smiling picture of, of Elise Stefanik, who has gone pure, ultra, ultra MAGA. The distinction between Elise Stefanik and Marjorie Taylor Greene is only on the, the edges now, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean... Stefanik has to watch her back now because she's got to keep up with Marge. You've got to make sure that she's, you know, in good stead with the crazies. That's no question because 
Matt Gates and Marjorie Green are like best friends and they've been, you know, they've really put a lot of heat on Kevin McCarthy the last couple of years. And, um, and so Elise Stefanik, who's technically keeping her place in the leadership lineup, whether the minority or the majority, but is clearly a contender for, I don't know, Donald Trump's vice presidential mate in the future and any kind of overthrow in the leadership. I mean, if Donald Trump freaks out and needs to start like a MAGA versus establishment war in the days following the election, and there's, you know, a gazillion reasons that he might want to, and he decides to throw Kevin McCarthy over a cliff and says he shouldn't be speaker, and he says Elise Stefanik should be speaker, she's got to make sure that she's she's, she's right. down Absolutely. with March. I mean, she's got to. I, I, I just think that I need to highlight some of this again, and maybe we're both going to be a little bit defensive here for people who say, well, you know, these people were like this all along. And the answer is no, they weren't. Maybe, maybe we should have seen things that we didn't see, but, but these folks have made certain decisions and taken certain paths that, well, that we didn't recognize at the time and that still come as a shock. And I, you know, I, we were down in, in Austin at the Texas Tribune uh, Festival, uh, Tim and Amanda Carpenter and I, and we were, uh, you know, talking about the bulwark and what the bulwark audience was and everything. And I said, I think people need to understand that that one of the, the, the subtext that runs through a lot of what we do is this deep sense of soul crushing uh, disillusionment um, and disappointment and regret. Yeah. <laughs> for what we have missed in the past, uh, what has happened to people that we thought we understood, to watch the, uh, you know, the slow motion or maybe not so slow motion, uh, just devolution of almost every single aspect of Republican politics and conservative politics. You know, you, you can pick out certain people here and there, but, you know, you look at the conservative media, you look at uh, conservative donors, you look at uh, what we used to euphemistically call think tanks like the Heritage Foundation. Right. And you see the same thing. And it's it, it it has been it has been extraordinary. There are so many Republican members and senators that I was in close touch with regularly that I could not bear to bump into right now in a lobby. They they couldn't look yeah. at me. I couldn't look at them looking at me. <laughs> I mean, oh my <laughs> heavens, it would just be terrible because I know that they know that I know it. Yeah, I know it's, it's <laughs> we, and we all know. Okay. So, um, we're talking on Tuesday, tomorrow on Wednesday, the January 6th committee has its first public hearing since July. There's some question about whether it will be the last public hearing. Interestingly enough, nobody seems to know what they're going to be doing tomorrow. Do you have any insight? So first, they just said they tried to make it sound like it was going to be boring. Jimmy Raskin, who once said that the revelations would blow the roof off the house, yeah. was so intentionally bending over backwards to, to lower expectations three days ago. Then they've kind of said some tantalizing you know, hints about Secret Service. So, so that could be really a big deal. And we know that a bunch of them lost their phones to the inspector general once an investigation review commenced. So there's been some recent news on that kind of stuff, and that could be big. I just do not believe that the 1-6 committee is not going to produce a shocker. I just don't. They've been waiting for two months. They keep saying that they get more and more information by the week. Um, and I don't believe it's the last hearing. So Liz Cheney is the only one who said that. 
It might not be the last hearing, but I just don't think between September 28th and November 8th, we're not going to have another hearing. And I just don't believe it's going to be a dud. That's all I know. Okay, so let's switch gears, shall we? Yeah. Let's let's talk, let's talk about the Democrats because you have a very provocative piece up at Real Clear Politics. Are progressives nearing a reckoning with their party? And it's illustrated by a picture of uh, Wisconsin's own Mark Pocan with the various members of the squad. And you you write liberal Democrats have racked up a long list of laments since Joe Biden took office, topping it off is the failure of their party in control of the White House and the Congress to pass voting rights, police reform, and the massive social welfare plans once known as Build Back Better. So talk to me about uh, the question you're asking there. What happens if Joe Biden steps aside? What will the free-for-all primaries be? And what will Democratic voters and leaders uh, do with uh, the, the progressives who have uh, you know, thought they were in the ascendancy but uh, now sound very, very frustrated? What do you think is going to happen? Right. So I I took a look back at the intra-party fighting over the Build Back Better. And in the end, obviously, we knew that Joe Manchin would write his own bill. Last July of 2021, he told Chuck Schumer, six months into the new administration, I can stop at $1.5 And everyone thought they should indulge the progressives for months and months and months afterwards with a price tag that was never going to be met. But they finally got, you know, a lot accomplished, the Democrats did, in a bipartisan way, which progressives said shouldn't be done, wouldn't happen, wasn't important. But critically on the issue of defund the police, Joe Biden, not only in the State of the Union address uh, in early March, but, you know, other times as well, has said, no, we want to fund the police. And then he gave a, a speech in Pennsylvania at the end of August, basically explicitly positioning the party as pro-police and rejecting uh, in no uncertain terms this idea of defunding the police. And then last week, the House passed after months of of back and forth with the liberals, um, additional police funding that the moderate, the frontline Democrats in swing districts had been fighting for uh, for months. The Democrats, the, the progressives wanted more accountability language for police. And that's, of course, their big disappointment is that that's what they wanted in police reform, which failed last spring. Um, and so they have a long list of gripes. But the truth is, they have failed as well. They have failed in the primaries to to nominate lefties in swing districts. They only were able to knock off one significant centrist, Kurt Schrader of Oregon, and that's because his district became more blue through redistricting. So they haven't had success when it comes to winning the seats that matter. The purple districts. And so they're going to have this moment, right, where we expect a big debate within the party after the midterm elections, win or lose about whether Joe Biden is going to serve a second term and if not, who should who should enter into the primary and what the center of the party, what, what is the debate of the party? What is the future of the party? And I think you're going to see a strong push by the establishment that we're not for defund the police. And if they're smart, they're going to have to accept that in the electorate, the median voter is a white non-college person uh, in their 50s. And they are not uh, progressive and that the Democrats have faced really scary erosion of support among non-college Black and Hispanic voters in 2020 and could this fall. So all of that is bad for progressives. Um, it's not that they won't fight back, but I think that there is going to be you know, some kind of a reckoning, and there should be. 
Yeah, as you're right, you know, um, however, should abortion deluge this year's midterm elections and rescue the Democrats, this conversation won't unfold the way it should, as the backlash from the reversal of Roe versus Wade would obscure the liabilities the party has with independents and swing voters on the economy, immigration and crime. But dismissing the gulf between the vision of progressives and the concern of swing voters, typically a white person in their mid-50s without a college degree, would only hinder the party in 2023 and then 2024. You argue that Democrats need an accounting that progressives will work mightily to avoid. So there might be some cleansing fire (laughs) coming in 2023. Well, that's the big question. If this is Rovember, and everyone row, row, rows their vote, like we keep being promised by the grassroots. Well, if they pick up seats, they're going to tell Joe Biden to knock down the filibuster and go crazy. And there's going to be a huge fight. Part of that will be exacerbated by, even before we get to the primary, by the fact that Nancy Pelosi is likely to leave. And that even though Hakeem Jeffries from New York is likely, is pretty assuredly going to replace her at the top, it still jostles the whole leadership structure and team. And there's going to be probably a progressive versus moderate, you know, fight in that contest. So progressives are going to push back. I mean, they're going to continue because they don't really want necessarily to win and govern. They really want to fundraise and 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 keep their energy up. They're they're fighters. They're kind of like Donald Trump. It's not really about resolution. It's really and, and settling. It's like about just staying on offense. And so they could really create a lot of problems for the party. Um, but I think that, you know, not only in that House leadership fight, but in a scenario where the Democrats do well in the election. Yeah. There are these two competing theories, as you as you point out in your article, the mobilization versus persuasion theory of elections. The progressives seem to believe that, okay, there are no swing voters. You know, our goal is not to reach out to these, you know, mythical swing uh, voters, Trump, Trump voters. What we should do is just mobilize our base, get them as worked up as possible uh, versus the no, we need to actually persuade people. I do think that's where the Pennsylvania race again becomes interesting because John Fetterman is quite progressive, but he seems to have a persuasion theory of elections, doesn't he? he? He is, in fact, reaching out um, to voters who might have voted in the past for for Donald Trump. So um, and also, as you point out, you know, the control of Congress will not be decided in Berkeley um, or <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. It will be decided in these swing districts. And uh, there's not one of these districts anywhere in the country where someone like an AOC could be elected. And yet it is the moderates who hold this balance of power who are in the, you know, squarely in the sights of the Democratic left. I mean, there's a real paradox there, isn't there? Several paradoxes. Yeah, it's a real challenge for the party. I think that on balance between Biden's inauguration and now, the progressives have less influence and that there's been some lessons learned. But an opening in the Democratic Party, you know, is going to be a little bit of the Wild West. And um, they're going to want to go down fighting, no question. Boy, do we not know what it's going to look like after November 8th. It's so wild. But on the other hand, I mean, I I could certainly imagine a scenario as as, as we're talking here where 
uh, you do have, you know, the Republicans are, are likely to take over the House of Representatives um, in perhaps a relatively narrow margin. And so you have the Republicans who are really, really tied up with uh, a lot of infighting and, of course, you know, pressure to have a weekly vote to impeach Joe <laughs> Biden, as Adam Kinzinger says. And by the way, I think he's right about that. And he, he reminds us that, you know, remember back in the day when they had a vote to repeal Obamacare pretty much every single week <laughs> and they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it because that's how they raised money and that's what the, the base wanted. So they're going to have the impeachment. So also. You, it's going to be very difficult for that House majority to pivot towards sanity and toward the middle. At the same time, perhaps you have a reckoning about the you know unelectable uh, Democrats. So in some ways, that may be awful, but may be salutary going forward. At the risk of being very nerdy, A.B., yeah. uh, over the weekend, um, again, I was I was down in, in Austin, Texas, and I spent the afternoon uh, on Saturday at the LBJ Presidential Library, which I strongly recommend. And one of the things that struck me was and I, and I certainly remember all of this. Um, I got my start in politics um, campaigning against Lyndon Johnson in 1968 uh, for for Eugene McCarthy. So this is kind of a revisionist history on my part to realize what a consequential progressive, extraordinarily consequential progressive Lyndon Johnson was in a short period of time, passing the Civil Rights Act, the War on Poverty, a fair housing legislation, the Voting Rights Act. And yet by the end of his term, he was loathed by his party's own left. And you think about the crack up that took place right then. No president has ever passed that series of major pieces of progressive legislation. And yet, rather than embrace him, and obviously there were a lot of reasons, you know, the war in Vietnam, <laughs> I understand, uh, but also on issues like law and order, when he took a stronger stand on the urban riots than, than the left, he was completely alienated from them. So there is an historical parallel that the the, the liberal democratic crack up in the late 1960s was really this split where it was never enough for the left wing of the party. And of course, that ushered in, you know, eight years of Republican rule under Nixon, you know, a parenthesis with Jimmy Carter and and then 12 years of Republican presidents, starting with with Ronald Reagan. I wonder whether there's any sense among Democrats, you know, remember the last time that we blew things up because our party wasn't pure enough? That really didn't work out well for us. First of all, I think the Democratic electorate um, is much more moderate than the left will have you believe on social media. They're more centrist. But I believe that the party is aware of this, but they believe that they, just like just like the Republican Party does, that they need to sort of coddle some part of the left to to co-opt that energy. And then therein lies the rub because the left, it's all or nothing. And, and as you said, it's never enough. We have the same problem for the Republicans, right? When there's a discussion after the midterms about unelectable candidates and Mitch McConnell gives some interview and drops a big bomb <laughs> about people who couldn't win the middle of the electorate and seemed like bozos, Donald Trump will say it was rigged and no wonder they didn't win because blah, blah, blah. He'll, he'll never admit it. And people will have to defend Donald Trump's loser candidates if they lose. And, you know, we, the right of the party has to cling to a, a lie about an election that's breaking our democracy apart. I mean, that's uh, pretty, it's pretty all or nothing to me. So it, it is a problem on both sides. I do think the Democrats 
have done a little bit of a better job with their extremists. Not perfect, but I hope that the idea that Biden is is ready to walk away, and I think he is. You do think he is? I do. I think that's why he gave that comment on 60 Minutes. I've believed this for a while that he's known he's going to walk away. And so on 60 Minutes, he said, it's too soon to talk about this. Because I think he's he wants people who want to run for president to know, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to challenge me. Like, I'm not delusional. Look, he was going to give a one-term pledge in 2020, and his advisors talked him out of it. So instead, he he gave a euphemism and said he's going to be a transitional figure, a bridge to the next generation. I think he knows he, how old he is. I think he knows how tired he is. And I hope when he has that conversation with the party, and I very much hope, as I've written, that he does not endorse Kamala Harris, and he he just uh, blesses a neutral open primary and says he'll you know ultimately embrace the nominee and fight like hell to make sure they win. Um, I think that I, you know I hope it's an occasion for him to impress upon them how great it is that they've worked with Republicans to pass all this bipartisan legislation, how much um, the party has to reach out to the middle of the country to win the Electoral College, that it can't be an urban party in cities alone to represent a majority in this country, and um, that there's some frank talk about the party's liabilities. Can you really see, though, any scenario in which Kamala Harris does not win the Democratic nomination. Uh, have you watched her recently? I have. I, <laughs> yeah, I can. I, I, I can I very much see a scenario which she doesn't win the nomination because I think she'll, she's literally among the weakest. She was among the weakest in the 2020 field. He picked her because she was the do no harm nominee. She's a political disaster. No one in the White House believes that she can win a national election. And yeah, they might be afraid of black women who will come to her defense, but. She doesn't have a rabbi. She doesn't have a constituency. There's no one in the party that's like the Kamala wing, right? There's no Bill Clinton saying like, hmm. you're not going to mess with her. Like, I'm her rabbi. You're not going to mess with her. Like, there's, there's no, she, she, she doesn't understand politics. She, she didn't know why she ran in 2020. She still can't speak English. I don't know. She, literally, when people say, Joe Biden, it's so hard to listen to him talk. Have you listened to her talk? I mean. I'm just saying, I'm just telling the truth. And it's terrible for Democrats. I'm sorry for them. But like, she is too weak. I don't think she, I don't think she can win the nomination. Okay, we're going to have many, many opportunities to talk about this in, in the future. So I just want to uh, double back on something that's been kind of hanging over this, the, the, the conversation, though, the question about the midterms, which is the, the role of abortion, uh, the abortion debate. You wrote a piece that I thought was very interesting about Lindsey Graham's uh, 15-week abortion ban proposal. Uh, this was really, uh, this was the last thing Senate Republicans wanted to talk about, right? I mean, it's a, the, the the last thing that they wanted to inject into the the debate was a national ban. And even though they've been scurrying to say, no, 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 we're not supporting that, we're not going to do that, uh, you can't unring a bell, right? So Lindsey Graham has changed the dynamic a little bit or you know, accelerated the dynamic, I think would be a better way of, of putting it, of making this election very much about Roe versus Wade. <laughs> yes, it's kind of like Dr. Oz um, going into his sartorial assessment of John Fetterman to help him. Um, Lindsey Graham thought he was, I don't know, some kind of campaign genius and decided to come up with what is the consensus position and should help Republicans technically but but anyone who who's been following this and, and appreciates the backlash knows that the Republicans said on June 24th, this is the most democratic solution. Roe was wrongly decided. It'll now be up to the people in every state and their state legislature. It's more representative. They get to decide. Then Lindsey Graham calls for a federal ban. 
And so what are the voters going to hear? Federal ban. Uh, and so it, even though he provided exceptions and it's supposed to be a more, you know, relaxed position um, than a lot of these trigger laws, it is, it's a political loser for Republicans. Everyone ran around him ran away from it, from McConnell to Cornyn on down to Rick Scott, who's running the NRSC. It was just a huge fart, and it was a disaster. And um, it was a gift to Democrats. And I don't know what Lindsey Graham, uh, like, again, maybe he thought he was trying to help, but then he's more lost than he looks. So it, it was, it was uh, pretty extraordinary. And, th- and that was kind of the day that the party kind of said in so many words, like, we're not talking about Uh-oh. this anymore at all. Like, it's over. <laughs> yeah, well, too bad about that. I mean, I, n- I noticed that they're, you know, scrambling away from their positions. Uh, Tudor Dixon, in, uh, who's the Republican candidate for governor in Michigan, you know, bizarrely trying to back away from a position. Blake Masters scrubbing his his website. There seems to be a real recognition that this is a liability to Republicans to continue to take the position that they took in the primaries. It's amazing. So I, I think the last time we were on, I said, I, you know, I still believe that, like, if you're the inflation voter and you just think that that's really, you know, that's going to drive your decision and you can't think of anything else, you're still going to come out. The question is, and there are a lot of them, and we see polls that show, you know, Republicans ahead by double digits on the economy, ahead with independents in the certain swing districts, among likely voters. I mean, there are still really, you know, some some bad clouds for Democrats, even though all of the vote, the polls generally had trended for them since June 24th, since Roe was overturned. I do think that it's fascinating how much of of a broad uh, backlash this is, that that men are mad, that they're learning about things for the first time. You know, they didn't know their daughters uh, tracked their periods on an app each month whose data can now be subpoenaed. Like, they literally just learned this this summer. And the, the idea of threatening interstate travel, threatening all birth control, you know, trying to block Plan B, Medicaid, all this stuff is is making it a far worse discussion than it used to be, which was just about abortion. And so... This idea that in post-Roe America, people are more, looking back, comfortable with Roe, even pro-lifers, it is such a problem for Republicans. And so I've been fascinated, even in Sarah Longwell's focus groups sometimes, mm-hmm. it's not that they the voters bring it up right away, but then when the subject comes up, they're like, oh yeah, I mean, if they're going to take away women's rights and tell me what, like, it's just it's going to drive so much energy and we just have, we have no idea, especially with young people who've never known, who just never could fathom that this wasn't going to be permanent. I I just, I just think Republicans, they might be able to run out the clock in terms of making it go away for 2022 and just take a bunch of hits. Maybe it doesn't create a massive blue tsunami. Maybe it just makes for a close election where they would have had a red tsunami and it mitigates Democrats' losses. But, Charlie, this is going to be a massive issue for Republicans in 2023. They're all going to have to take a stand. And Pence is going to, you know, be cleansing their souls with a federal ban. He's going to be running on that. And, you know, DeSantis is going to have to say, I'm happy with my 15-week thing. Everyone's going to have to pick whether or not they support um exceptions. And it's going to be a huge problem for Republicans, I think, even after November 8th in a bigger way. You know, this was not predictable. I I, I remember saying at the time the decision came down that uh, people ought to set aside the polls because uh, this was such a fluid situation. And of course, there would be a push and a pull between the parties who would succeed in casting the other as most extreme. And I could certainly have imagined an alternative uh, scenario in which uh, Democrats were 
portrayed as the as the party that wanted abortion for all nine yes. months without exceptions. Um, there's been a lot of track record you know, with the whole debate about partial birth abortion. Instead, Republicans basically said, hold my beer. And in one state after another, they passed um, very, um, you know, sweeping uh, bans. And as you point out, Americans are now having conversations they never anticipated. And because the entire environment has changed because this was a, you know, you had a free shot when there was Roe versus Wade was on the books. Politicians could say or do anything because it would never actually affect anything. Now we're having these conversations about, as you wrote, the future of in vitro fertilization. Nobody thought about that before. Investigations of mi- women who have miscarriages, limits on interstate travel, um, or as you point out, data from menstrual cycle apps being subpoenaed, which again, was on nobody's radar screen. Treatment for women carrying non-viable fetuses, doctors who are reluctant to treat them because they're not sick, uh, sick enough, or doctors who are calling lawyers before treating hemorrhaging women. So this is all completely new, and it will continue after the midterms, and it's going to ramp up. It's not going to go away anytime soon. I think that that's a safe prediction at this point, right? And that's that's your point, is that, you know, whatever happens in 2022, we're going to have to deal with this, and Republicans especially are going to have to deal with this um, in the run-up to the 2024 election, where this is going to be continue to be a huge wild card issue. It's fascinating. Um, Will Salatin said um, on the on the live mm-hmm. stream um, a couple weeks back uh, that I did with him and JVL that, you know, that mm-hmm. scandals go away in four days because we have no, you know, yeah. attention span, but abortion is forever, right? And for so many reasons, it's always present. Um, it's always a part of life. But I think that, you know, if you're Nikki Haley, if you're Mike Pompeo, if you're Tom Cotton, they're going to have, I mean, they can run and hide right now for a few more, for six more weeks as of today. But I mean, afterwards, right, they're going to have to look at what abortion did, what the electorate told us about abortion, and they're going to have to decide where they're going to sit and stand. And that's, that's going to be tough because, you know, even Donald Trump knows this is a disaster (laughs) politically. And so he was quiet after the decision. And it certainly got him elected to promise he would appoint federal society judges but who would eliminate Roe. But here we are in the new reality, and he knows it's unpopular. So it'll be fascinating to see what that debate is like for Republicans next year. A.B. Stoddard, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be with you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.